see we've got uh, got a number of attendees starting to log on at the moment. We're up to about 33 and counting upwards, which is great. I'm just going to wait for a few more people uh, to come online before I introduce Lindiwe, um, who's going to be our presenter and speaker today. Um, I'd like to, to start to welcome people, if I may do, just as a beginning. Um, I see we've got Brenda Davidson, a friend of ours, is on there as well, Jill Slaughter. Uh, Jason Hobbs, Yaku Esther Hazen from one of my colleagues from the business, Julian Cohen, an old friend who we used to work together at Godfrey City so many years back. Uh, Kursi uh, Foss, who's from a sister company of ours as well. Uh, Kim Roberts, nice to see you too. Uh, Lance Henney, uh, Lisa Carner from, uh, from Cape Town from Legacy Hotels. Man uh, Mantanzima Pai, good to see you, my friend, Melissa Taylor. Um, I could probably go through every, everybody, Robert Jasper from the Santon Sun Hotel. Um, Sean Fermi, Sean Bailey, uh, Surinan, thank you as well for helping us set this up, Sue. Uh, so much appreciated um, as well. Vanessa Brooks uh, from FNB and also Thomas Overbeck, an old friend from South African Chefs Association. Um, so uh, I, think, um, I think then we'll, um, uh, we'll make a start if we can. We've got a 59, 60 people online now. So, uh, so welcome. Just in case you don't know me, my name's Stephen Hickmore. Um, we've been presenting a few webinars over this difficult period, and I'm very excited to be able to uh, introduce you to uh, Lindiwe Sangweni Sidhu. Um, she is the, the CEO of the City Lodge Hotel Group. Um, just as means of introduction, uh, Lindiwe studied um, at uh, Hospitality School in Switzerland, uh, the very famous uh, Ecole des Roches, um, and also Penn State University, where she achieved a BSc in Hotel and Restaurant and institutional management, so graduated in 1993. Um, career in hospitality began at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, DC, um, and then she joined the Park Hyatt in Rosebank um, as uh, executive committee as rooms division. Um, she then became, she's also chief director of tourism support at the Department of Environmental Affairs and Tourism, was in 1999. Uh, before then, she was appointed uh, to the general manager position of the Interconti uh, Santon Towers Hotel. Um, started a, a hospitality company of her own in, in 2007, the first one being the Holiday Inn in Soweto, uh, which was then further renamed as the Soweto Hotel and Conference Center, which is still going strong. Um, was also at the same time CEO of the Birchwood Hotel um, and the Oatambo Conference Center, and then joined City Lodge, and that was some years back, um, and holds the post of the Chief Operating Officer of that company. She sits on the board of the South African Tourism uh, Board and is chairperson of the Tourism Triple um, BEE uh, Charter Council. Um, Council. So Lindiwe, with that long introduction, um, there's so many things in your career and I'm sure that's been missed out a lot. I'd like to introduce you and, um, and hopefully uh, uh, we'll have lots of questions from our, uh, from our uh, participants today. I'll pass over to you, Lindiwe. So good morning, um, Stephen, and thank you so much for that, um, that introduction. Um, makes me blush a little when um, people have to go through all of that, but I appreciate the introduction that you've given. And more than anything, I appreciate the opportunity um, to be able to come and converse on this webinar that you have set up through your company uh, and, and talk to, to colleagues. And you're asking, um, the big question today, how will the hospitality industry recover? I, I don't think I have the magic um, 
bullet or the silver bullet as they call it um, or the answer to this but really what I thought we would do this morning is put sort of like a backdrop to um, our discussion and um, sort of tidy up the thoughts which I think are going through everybody's minds. I don't think anything that I'm going to say is uh, new to anyone but sometimes what's good in a crisis or what's good in a tough period where it's difficult to work out if the light is the light at the end of the tunnel or the light of the train coming to, to smash you down. It's sometimes good to just get together and to put order to our thinking and to begin to think of how we're going to get out of this together. So I start off really with what I call the rude awakening. And I think um, if we go to the next slide, you'll see that when I speak of the rude awakening, it's really what we all went through um, not long ago. We, we were all humming along, um, thinking that what we already had was bad enough. <laughs> we had our corruption charges with the you know, Zonda Commission um, going on. Moody's was lurking at our doorstep um, with the news of a downgrade. And sadly, they did kick us in the teeth and dealt us the downgrade anyway during COVID. Um, ESCOM and load shedding seemed like such a big problem then and is much less of a problem today given the pandemic that we're going through. The failing SOEs, SAA, um, Transnet, etc. So I, I think that already was a daunting economic backdrop for South Africa. Uh, we were already beginning to feel the impact in terms of what it was doing to our businesses. Um, from a revenue point of view and, and just also from how our margins were just becoming much more squeezed with, um, you know, prices of petrol and inflation and other aspects that were affecting our, our profit margins. Um, and then we had SONA 2020, where President Ramaphosa really positioned tourism at the center of, of his delivery. And we looked like we were going to be the, the knights in shining armor who were going to come out uh, brandishing our swords and taking our entire economy um, um, to another level, given the impact that tourism has across the value chain. And so the president announced that we were to bring in 21 million tourists by 2030. Of course, this was the war cry that was coming from South African tourism, as well as other bodies, the Tourism Business Council of South Africa, FedHasa, and many other players that represent us as the tourism industry. And somewhere in China, we had heard of this first case of COVID, of this new uh, coronavirus, this novel corona, that really seemed so distant, but was already beginning to have an impact on the markets. We could see that the Asian markets were suffering because of this. We started hearing of cases growing. We started hearing of this province where apparently this corona had started in Huan. And again, it just seemed so far until boom, you know, patient zero on the 5th of March arrives in South Africa from a holiday in Italy and the reality dawned on South Africa. And three months later today, from a place where we really never anticipated, everything seemed surreal when it was first announced, we now sit with over today 111,000 cases. With Western Cape, the Eastern Cape and Gauteng really being identified as the epicenters. And these are key centers for our own economic um, um, you know, uh, um, 
for us to progress as an economy, it hurts when centers like Western Cape, Eastern Cape and Gauteng are actually at the epicenter. We move on to the next slide where I have taken a borrowed slide from the Tourism Business Council of South Africa. Again, wanting just to hone in and to bring home how important the economic value of tourism in South Africa is and has been. We enjoyed a space within the, the, the GDP of 8.6%, um, often contributed by ourselves as an industry to the entire GDP of the country. Export industry in terms of the forex that was coming in as a result of tourism, 120 billion. We supported 1.5 million total jobs. We were watching a, a beautiful growing number of SMMEs, smaller businesses that are very essential in the tourism value chain of over just over 49,000. And so it went good spend in casinos and restaurants at a total spend that we were contributing in 2018 of up to 273 billion. All of this again, just demonstrating again, the greater economic impact that tourism had. And, ha and it's so sad I talk about it in the past tense, but had in South Africa. We then move on to the next slide where we understand that given the, 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 the impact of COVID and the announcement of COVID that I spoke of earlier, this plummeted us into a lockdown situation. Our president, through invoking the National Disaster Management Act, had to now um, put the entire country together with his cabinet, um, came to a decision that it was important for us to contain the, con the corona and to contain the, the speed at which cases would um, take the corona into unprecedented levels. And by so doing, this plummeted all our businesses in South Africa. And today I'm talking specifically about tourism, but it, 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 it left no one untouched. And our tourism businesses overnight um, plummeted into unprecedented low levels. A lot of us were sitting, listening in, have a personal experience of what it means to watch 65% occupancy um, on one day and the next day 0% occupancy. So by, I think if I remember, it was midnight, 26 March, we all understood that we were under lockdown and nobody really could do anything except wait and sit and wait out um, the next announcement of the president together with his council of, of ministers when we would be able to begin to um, come out of lockdown. This of course has had an impact and it's had a negative impact. And so if we go to the next slide, we recognize the impact of COVID-19. Again, this comes from the Tourism Business Council of South Africa, where on the right-hand side, you see the entire value chain of all of us in the tourism industry, where, whether it's car hire or airlines or the airports, restaurants, activities and adventure operators, the small guy in Soweto doing tour guides, tour guiding festivals, you name it, that entire value chain has had a, a, a huge impact negatively. Um, as a result of lockdown, as I've already mentioned, we saw our businesses coming to a standstill. This has resulted in a lot of our employees either being on layoff, meaning that they're maybe earning a portion of their salary, and in many cases, earning nothing, and sadly, in other cases, also being uh, retrenched. We, 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 we hear of over 600,000 jobs, direct tourism jobs being lost in this period and growing. We hear of companies that have either liquidated 
or are already beginning to liquidate. And so it goes. And basically this impact is also having a direct impact on a very important part of our industry, you know, tourism, um, 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 transformation of tourism, and that is the triple BEE effect. This too has been negatively impacted because as we know, um, when all the bigger businesses are suffering, the smaller businesses are the first to go. If not already in the earlier months of this lockdown, the impact was felt immediately. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm really summarizing what we all know, but sometimes it is good, I think, to just pause and to recognize that we're all in the same boat. Um, we've heard of the sad occurrences of Comair, Hertz, SA Expresses, some of the bigger entities that have actually um, permanently closed down. I must say, if we go to the next slide, that it's so important to also recognize the work of the Tourism Business Council of South Africa and the work of the Federated um, Hospitality um, Association of South Africa, FEDHASA, who have played a really key um, role in making sure that the voice of tourism is heard. As every different, as every sector was being closed down, each association in the different sectors was really making sure that the voice of business was heard by government. And there was this gentle balance that had to be played in terms of making sure that livelihood and lives were in balance. So the lives of people obviously being a key focus as the president had underlined and, and, and emphasized at the beginning of lockdown, but coming into level three, we began to hear Tourism Business Council playing a bigger role in really rattling the cage doors of, of government and, and really underscoring a greater importance of livelihood. Um, you cannot have hotels and car associations and rentals and all the businesses that I spoke of earlier on being shut down at the expense of putting together, of saving lives. Um, and really the big question that was being asked was, what will we have to open if we wait until December? Because really the waiting game of opening in December was not palatable. In the meantime, we also understand that 68 billion in tourism spend was lost in three months. And this was in the newspaper article that was um, um, uh, given to, on the 23rd, two days ago. Again, I've already lamented the number of jobs that have been lost. We hear a lot about restaurants. I know Wendy Alberts has done an, a tremendously uh, wonderful job also being the voice of restaurants and, and, and rattling the cage doors of government to say, we've got to do something. Jobs have been lost, restaurants have closed down. And so it goes. So if that is the lay of the land, on the 17th of June, um, our president announced advanced level three. Um, and in this, I think, we saw a glimmer of hope. We all saw a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. The work of the Tourism Business Council and of RASA and of FEDHASA and many other associations was coming to fruition. And the president announced um, in his um, delivery of his dear compatriots in our lounges that the following activities would be allowed at level three, which was more like an advanced level three. He spoke of restaurants, um, with limited capacity being allowed to be open for sit down. He spoke of personal care services and we understand that um, hair salons and the sorbets of the world have opened. He also spoke of conferences for work purposes being allowed to um, come back online, albeit with limited capacity. Um, accommodation, 
Um, we all know that to date, um, accommodation providers like ourselves at City Lodge Hotel Group have been looking after quarantine guests and isolation guests, which is really managed by the Department of Public Works and Infrastructure together with the Department of Health. Um, we had a few um, essential service travelers who were uh, coming into our hotels, and that really was just not um, economically viable. So in the announcement, commercially licensed accommodation, um, I think he ring-fenced Airbnb, but other than that, we would all be able to now continue um, really enjoying a bigger slice of the markets that would probably be available, which would include leisure. He talked of cinemas, theaters, and casinos coming back with limited capacity, and also non-contact sports. The big question is, what are the new regulations and what restrictions do we have? We're still um, patiently waiting for our minister, Minister Kubayan Gubani, um, who I think did write to the TBCSA and uh, did provide an apology yesterday evening um, and, and, and said we would be very soon, it would be imminent that we would get some sort of guideline in terms of what new restrictions and regulations would be applied to the announcement of the president from his last speech. And so while we await that as an industry, I think really what we've all recognized as an industry is we need to make sure that we deal, first of all, with protocols. I think everyone at this stage, no matter which part of the um, value chain we sit on in tourism, has recognized the importance of safety assurances. Safety assurances to look after our staff and make sure that our people feel assured and reassured that when they come back to work, we have taken all the greatest care that we can in terms of provision of PPE, um, training on how to clean. It's not like we were not an already clean industry that focused a lot on, on, on health and hygiene, but we all recognize that this COVID-19 has, has introduced aspects we never imagined. Whoever imagined we'd all be wearing masks and greeting guests behind masks or behind screens. Whoever guessed we'd be taking temperatures of anyone who entered our hotels or restaurants or car rentals and so on. And so these protocols, I think, have been center field. Again, with the leadership of FEDHASA and the leadership of Tourism Business Council, really bringing us together and saying, this is not an, a competitive sports a space. Let's come in together and, 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 and collaborate. And it's been really amazing to see different players from different parts of the value chain coming around the table and lending whatever support and, 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 and information we could to strengthen our protocols. We now are proud owners of a beautiful booklet of protocols that have been distributed by FEDHASA and TBCSA. Of course, during the period of um, taking care of quarantine and isolation hotels, the minister um, did release some um, uh, gazetted that it was, it was um, applicable for players in the industry, especially accommodation providers, to come around the table and collaborate uh, around pricing, something which we would normally not do because we would be in contravention of um, the, the, the Competition Act. But in this particular case, we've done that. We are now all, of course, going back into our competitive spot space, and it's all back to understanding that we all need to bring our businesses back online and survive. And the big question is, what is that price going to be? Pricing, I think, is something that we all need to be considering, albeit competitively. But remember that everybody has been affected. 
discretionary in, uh, income is, is, is really not available in many cases. If we are expecting leisure business of any form, we need to remember that the man and woman on the ground has a much thinner wallet and much less span, spend. And so as we open up, pricing of our product is going to be very important. Um, we don't want to be in a situation, of course, where we enter price wars. And so this is, again, a wonderful opportunity for players around the table to start looking at packaging, uh, packaging of hotels, restaurants, and travel of all forms. Um, and again, keeping our client and our guest at the center field and making it attractive to come out, shake off that cabin fever, and start um, traveling and start wanting to rediscover our country. If you had planned an overseas cruise, an overseas trip, well, we all know that that's over and that's not going to happen. How about a drive down to watch that beautiful sardine um, run that um, was doing the rounds on, on, on virtual um, spaces? Or how about a beautiful drive to Clarence or a beautiful drive or a flight down to um, one of our beautiful beaches um, all over the country. So this again talks to the right pricing, but again, stimulating demand and getting our domestic tourism up and running. Big question, will interprovincial travel um, be relaxed? Because it is an essential part to make this a success. And we hope that when the minister does announce what the new regulations are that this um, aspect of interprovincial travel has been taken into consideration. So bottom line, I think if we go into this new space of reopening, let's show government that we can. Let's not allow ourselves to, to, to slip in terms of the safety requirements. Let's build a reputation as an industry that we are self-regulating, that we are compliant, and that we really want to ensure that this is a long-term uh, platform that not only our government, but our guests, and especially international guests, when that time comes, will recognize we take very seriously and have implemented all the correct pr uh, procedures. So how will we recover? What, what, what are the things that obviously are going through all our minds? And if we go to the next slide, we'll see that we, we do have the ability to recover. I, be, I truly believe we can. Um, sadly, there are some casualties, as I already mentioned, and there will be casualties along the way. And we will all be restructuring our businesses or reconfiguring, rather, our businesses to um, work differently and to work better. Um, I know a lot of us are already uh, knocking on the doors of the banks to see what we can do in terms of our own um, working capitals or debt um, and, 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 and the interest thereof. But putting that aside and coming back to practical aspects, air travel has been a very important aspect and we hope to see more domestic air, air, airports opened also as part of this, um, just to allow more movement and to ensure that the domestic tourism that I spoke about um, is, is, is enabled. We shouldn't take our focus off regional travel. And as important as lockdown has been, day number 91 today in South Africa, other countries have also been going through the same, and I'm speaking specifically about regional um, uh, countries in our SADC region, your Botswana, Namibia, Mozambique, and so on. And it's important to recognize that they too are coming out of that slumber that we have also been in. Namibia recently announced moving to what they call level four, and that's the equivalent of our level two. Botswana has also recently relaxed its restrictions. 
And um, with Namibia's announcements also of regional flights coming back online, one hopes that we will also begin to see similar in South Africa, because if we can stimulate that type of regional movement, we can focus on some sort of um, uh, growth and demand that I spoke of earlier. I think going forward, we just need to look at the entire African continent and South African tourism has certainly recognized this um, in our conversations as a board member that I, that I sit on, um, that not only regional, but the entire African continent in our recovery phase is going to be very important. Um, we've heard and it's been touted that international flights are only likely to start early 2021. Again, this is not palatable and is not um, sustainable for any of us, given that we are trying to bring our businesses off, you know, off the ground. And an earlier return of international flights would also be far much more um, uh, sort of appreciated. We, we all probably are beginning to think of what do I do in my business to make it far much more attractive? No doubt technology is going to rule. We've seen how, um, including this webinar, we've been thrown into the world of virtual meetings. Um, Zoom seemed so far away three months ago um, and all the other platforms, MS Teams, et cetera, Google Chats have really taken center field. Given that our business is about people, we do need to find a way and make sure that there is a balance and that while technology is at the forefront, how do we make sure that we bring people back into our properties, bring people back into our hotels and conference centers and restaurants, recognizing that technology can continue to play a key role, be it in how people check in, be it in how guests um, experience a restaurant um, evening out, um, technology can continue to play a really key part from reservation making to checking in to uh, booking a meal with your with your family. Um, we see a lot of the airlines are using technology, for example, for declarations before you fly. So declaring that you're COVID free, that you haven't been exposed is also becoming part of this whole technological innovation that I speak of. So all of us, I think, are already in that space and there, there couldn't have been a better time or a, a greater motivation to push us um, faster into that space. So how do we make it positive? We need to also think of flexible staffing solutions. I'm sure all of us are now experiencing how, given that there is very little business coming in, many of us would want to start saying, how do I make sure that my staff staffing is flexible, that while I preserve jobs, I too can make sure that my staff are able to benefit from this. And I, I think, I often wonder in South Africa if we will ever reach a stage, and I think this is the time, where it would be acceptable for a staff member to have three jobs with three different hospitality players. What would be wrong really with someone working in a hotel in the daytime and working in a restaurant in the evening? And, and I think those are the sort of conversations that we need to start opening. Again, allowing our staffing to see themselves as, um, as, as part of the, the canvas that we are drawing. We need to bring the unions closer um, and not keep them at a distance, but engage the unions because also multitasking and being able to be flexible and agile is going to be an important part of um, um, job descriptions and, and, and how staff work. You could be working as a front desk clerk, but very quickly find yourself 
making beds because that is a requirement as, as, as business goes through its whole transition period coming out of COVID. Food and beverage offer, offering, I think we all understand that the buffet is a thing of yesterday because it poses one of the greatest risks of contamination and, and spread of infection. But out of that, just beautiful opportunities are afforded to us to come out with new ways of serving food, new ways of presenting food, keeping it delicious, keeping it hot, keeping it you know, in, in line with what guests are looking for, be it from our halal to our vegan and different dietary requirements. But all of it, how will it be served and, and really thinking of keeping that, those aspects of social distancing, sanitization. Um, I, I'm still trying to imagine how anyone is going to go to a restaurant and eat without a mask. Um, but I think we will, we will soon begin to give different examples of how we can do this innovatively. Apps and devices as part of technology are obviously going to be a, play a big part, how we pay for our stay, how we pay for um, the meal that we've just had. And of course, a lot of this is already happening. I'm not talking about anything new, I'm sure to some of you, but simply saying we need to recognize that we are being hurled into innovation. Um, we then move on to the bigger picture. And if we are to come back into that playground that we so enjoyed of being international players of um, the tourism um, canvas, I think it's important to recognize that South African tourism is working very hard on a recovery plan. They're doing it in collaboration with TBCSA, FEDHASA, the National Department of Tourism. Um, I do hope that we as the industry feel that our voices have been heard. And if not, as I mentioned earlier on, the Tourism Business Council really has tried uh, through surveys and through engagement to get our input so that we can all say we have been part of the recovery plan. Um, you probably all listened to Tito Mboweni last night or in the afternoon yesterday or later in the evening or when you read his speech. Um, we must recognize that a great part of the South African tourism budget has been slashed or suspended, as he puts it. So a budget that would have otherwise been at about 2.8 billion for the National Department of Tourism is now sitting with a, a suspended 1 billion. And a great part of that is what would have been allocated to South African tourism as the entity that markets our country overseas and, and domestically. So recognizing that, we also need to find ways of marketing and being part of our marketing um, um, efforts with much more uh, smaller budgets uh, and less money to, to, to get our voice out there internationally. I think it's important for um, the National Department of Tourism and other players in government to continue um, unlocking and unblocking the whole process that we had already gone into of facilitating e-visas and just making it far much easier to travel. Um, one wonders again what new regulations and restrictions will come along with COVID-19. I'm sure we can all imagine now that an e-visa will definitely be accompanied with some sort of clearance on did you have a COVID test and, and so on. And the big question, will people have to quarantine? Will our guests have to quarantine for 14 days before they enjoy a holiday in South Africa? Um, we already hear of that in Namibia. The Namibians have been very clear that if you are traveling into uh, Namibia, you do need to quarantine for 14 days. I said I'd do it if I was able to uh, take my quarantine period in the Okovango, uh, sipping something nice while I wait to be cleared. Um, but having said that, and, and jokes aside, we need to again recognize that there will be 
new markets to seek internationally. Everyone will be following and fighting for the, the same markets. If you do listen to Richard Quest on CNN most evenings, he already has started a whole show where he talks uh, to different ministers of tourism um, in Europe, um, be it Malta, uh, different um, aspects of tourism on the value chain, and, and asking what is being done and what's needed. Um, one of the big things that's being talked about um, is the green corridors, or what they call bubbles, social bubbles, or trusted destinations, which I'll touch on again later. But all of these become very important. We need to revitalize relationships that we had, and I'm sure a lot of us are already doing that. We need to now come up with new, new products. You know, how will a tour guide conduct a tour in Soweto or anywhere else in South Africa? Um, how do we also make use of open spaces and natural attractions? Because remember, I guess we're trying to get away from any situation where people will be confined in spaces and therefore uh, limited because of the, uh, the, 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 the scare of COVID infection. But if we utilize our open spaces and look at this as new ways of introducing adventure tourism, which already was um, certainly something exciting to come to South Africa for, but can be expanded on for, for our um, ongoing um, exposure of South Africa to the international market. I continue again on safe travels in South Africa. It will be important that we move ourselves into being a safe, um, trusted destination from a point of view of post-COVID. Um, so all those protocols I spoke of earlier become very key as part of our marketing. And I think if you go onto most of our websites today of some of the players who have you know, come out, we, we see a lot of marketing around what the protocols are to reassure guests and to reassure uh, people who are wanting to choose and select a destination. Of course, safety and security, as we all know, has not gone off, sadly. In fact, after some of the restrictions were listed, were lifted, excuse me, we saw, sadly, safety and security taking a prominent space in South Africa, and this needs to be addressed. We really need to emphasize um, in our partnership and, and, and working with government the importance of really securing um, anyone who comes to South Africa, that safety and security that they seek. Um, and so putting a stamp on protocol safety as well as a stamp on safety and security for human lives. So what will South Africa be like post-COVID? Well, if you go online and look at the Tour Lanes survey, you'll see that already South Africa, 54% of people who were questioned in this survey, uh, South Africa was one of the most popular post-COVID destinations alongside Canada and New Zealand. And this is a reassurance. And this is again, because when you go into the depth of the survey, they talk again of the wonderful um, sights and scenes that we have, our fauna and flora, our you know, if you go to the Karoo or if you want to climb Table Mountain. So we still have so many beautiful natural um, attractions and very unique attractions making us a very potentially great post-COVID destination. So we mustn't allow um, ourselves to take our eyes off that ball and put ourselves very quickly at the top of the list when travelers begin to start traveling internationally. And so um, really, Coming to the end of this presentation, if we um, all look at what has been spoken about or what I've tried to table, 
is to just really say, how do we together get ourselves moving forward in spite of all the difficulty and the challenges that we are faced with realistically, trying to keep our businesses open, realistically trying to pay employees, realistically trying to pave off liquidations and retrenchments. When all that is cleared in the very short period of time, what can we do domestically and in the medium to long term, how do we get ourselves being a significant player again from a tourism point of view um, in the rest of the world? And having said that, I think I'm gonna turn back to, to, to Stephen and uh, I'm sure there's lots of interesting conversation waiting to take place. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you very much indeed, Lindy Way. That was a very enlightening presentation. I, I really appreciate the professionalism uh, in putting that together. Um, and, and we've got a number of questions that are, that are coming on. I'd like, to, I'd like to start, if I may, with one from Tabile Tlamini, which I think is, <clears throat> is fairly, fairly poignant. What kind of advantage do you think South Africa would gain from opening our borders first, getting first in the market? <laughs> I, I think it goes, hello, Tobile. Um, I think it goes without saying that that is something that we should all, all be wanting to do, that first player advantage, as they call it. That if we could really position ourselves and put ourselves at the front of assuring, first of all, government, that we have our protocols in place, that we are ready to receive guests and clients, and that we can ensure very little, if not minimal and none, if possible, um, spread an infection of COVID, we certainly would, I think, um, uh, be able to do that. Now, realistically, that key doesn't sit, that golden key doesn't sit with us. It sits with government. It's a decision that government would make. And I think it comes back again to what I spoke about of being that voice and making sure that it's um, those type of inputs that we should be making to government to, to really um, influence the thinking and to really encourage that by putting ourselves at the forefront, we put ourselves quicker and faster into uh, being at the forefront. Mind you, regional tourism is the sort of tourism we should be looking for. That's the shopping tourist. That's the tourist who comes for medical care in South Africa. That's the, the tourist who's likely to spend a little longer because there's a number of hit points during that stay um, when, when coming into, into South Africa. We've always noted that the average length of stay is longer for um, regional tourism. And it always has been a significant part of our tourism numbers. Indeed, why have the Airbnbs been left out? And are the hospitality industry or the hotel industry celebrating this fact? <laughs> it's a naughty question. Um, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm the, the real authority who can speak out on why they've been left out. I'm imagining that um, there is an aspect of regulation and, 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 and really regulation that is out of our hands. Airbnb, as you know, is an international um, um, shared economy player. Um, and so we have very little say. Um, in terms of how, how the, the, the participants of Airbnb play. We have very little say, I imagine, in terms of managing of protocols because Airbnb would not be part of Tourism Business Council of South Africa or FEDHASA or any of the authorities that sort of oversee and have oversight over how they manage and how they regulate themselves. And I think from a regulation point of view, especially around 
um, the protocols, government would have been a, a bit anxious and a bit um, nervous is, is, is my take in terms of how that would be managed. But there might be others who have signed in who have a, a, a better insight on that. Thank you. Yes, naughty question. Uh, it is. <laughs> what, are, we, are, we, are we excited and, and ululating? Look, I, I don't think any one of us at this time can really ululate. We mustn't forget that behind every Airbnb business is a South African face. Yes. And behind that business is some sort of income that keeps a South African family up and, 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 and being part of the economy. So in my collaborative and unified um, spirit, which is part of my essence, I think we shouldn't celebrate anyone's downfall, especially in the time of COVID-19, because one more unemployed or one less business is a bigger strain on the bigger economy. Um, I think what would be great going forward is to see how Airbnb finds its way into being part of the um, tourism grading council type um, environment and being part of, you know, the formalized um, structures, paying taxes like we all do and, 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 being, and participating in, in, in all the other aspects that we do from a monetary point of view. Ndiwe, you talk very strongly about cooperation between the industry um, and the importance then of, um, of, of also keeping close to government um, at the same time. Um, Cooperation in the past has it's been there. Um, you know, we do understand that there's a lot of uh, more informal uh, types of businesses that are affected very heavily by this, and they're probably not being counted quite as strongly as the um, uh, the large players that have got lobbying power. But how? And this is a question really from Rose Bischoff. Um, how does the industry restart a business without getting into a price war, without actually getting into those types of tactics? Uh, which are tempting, I guess, to try and uh, um, um, find your own way with it, uh, with the exception of others. Thanks for that question, Rose. Yeah, thank, thank you, Rose. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question, but a difficult one to answer. So, you know, I mentioned that we're now moving out of our space where we collaborated as an industry, specifically hotels, where we all came up with the same price and we all worked one price for government. Um, now, when we go back to the drawing board in terms of our own recovery space, each one of us looks at our business and looks at, first of all, what your product is, whether your offering is a one star to a four star. And we all go back to, you know, working out the rates that are going to make us sustain our businesses, get us to break even point as quickly as possible. Um, how do we keep away from, from, from price wars? I think the price wars were already um, taking place pre-COVID. Um, given that guests know that all they have to do is go onto any of the um, OTAs um, or online in terms of uh, booking. And, and, and really, it's, it's, it's going to have to be one of us understanding, as I said earlier on, what, what is, the, what is, the, what is the, the discretionary income that is sitting, first of all, with leisure business? What, what, what is available in the pockets of corporates? Corporates are already asking for um, a lot of reprieve and, and for us to, to go gentle on them when it comes to our pricing. I'm sure a lot of us recognize that there will be very few price increases. Um, but then this is done with that delicate balance of understanding. If I don't give you a price increase, um, uh, Mr. Guest, 
how do I manage my business through all the inflationary aspects that are, are out there um, attacking us, um, be it from a government perspective, be it from um, petrol prices, um, food going up. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a gentle balance um, and one that I think we all find very difficult. The airlines are feeling it, the hotels are feeling it. Um, really the answer will be in us, Rose, I think being responsible in how we um, approach this and taking into account that we want to bring guests back rather than make guests feel that this is unpalatable and unaffordable and out of reach. So innovation is going to, I think, play a great part in how we then put our prices together. Thank you, Lindy Wei. Um, a question here, anonymous uh, attendee. Um, so research has shown that three-star graded hotels have shown, uh, in the past have shown an increased occupancy rate uh, compared to the four and five star and uh, boutique counterparts. Um, which also are catering for international and business travelers. Um, do you think there'll be an increase in the segment of four and five star markets? Um, um, and do you think that the regional travel will actually stimulate that market segment? Or are they going to uh, rather look at, at more, um, if I may say so, value um, hotels? Um, I would like to perhaps say like the City Lodge Group, um, do you see an increase in the three-star market, uh, partly because of people's uh, um, propensity to be able to afford things, or is there is there more hope there for four and five stars? Yeah, I think at this time we should, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if you've been retrenched, if you are on a reduced salary, if you are a business trying to survive, um, whichever space you're sitting in, your decisions on where you stay are all going to be about value for money. Um, and value for money always sits, usually sits in your sort of three-star, two-star, one-star market. I mean, look at the airline industry. Every one of us, whether we're traveling for business now or whether we are traveling as, 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 as you know, Joe Blow on the street, are also, you know, looking for good deals. And that's why the low-cost airlines tend to be far much more um, attractive. So my, my, my take is that three-star, two-star, and one-star are certainly going to be um, the winners in terms of where guests and clients are likely to make their decisions. That said, um, you can't also just simply shut down your four-star and five-star establishments. So four-star and five-star establishments, um, I think, are likely to start trading a bit lower and, and coming to play in the space of the three-star um, um, uh, segment, but it wouldn't be sustainable, of course. It wouldn't be sustainable in terms of maintaining what is required for a good return on investment in terms of what four-star and five-star call for. So once again, um, we all are going to have to recognize that as we move with our rates going up across the different um, grading levels of, of, of our accommodation, um, there will have to be some very gentle movement. Um, I, I foresee um, less use of four-star and five-star product during this tough time. And that over time, especially when we go back to our international market, that our international um, guests and clients will be the ones who um, really revitalize and bring back that four and five-star market back into the game, which is why all the more important for us to get our international market back into uh, traveling into South Africa. 
So a follow-on question from that from Robert Jasper, who's is a general manager of one of South Africa's beautiful and well-established five-star hotels, the Santon Sun Towers. Um, he's asking, do you, do you believe that the OTAs will lose some of their influence uh, and their market share going forward? Hi, Robert, how are you? Yes, um, I, I think it goes without saying. And, and you know, again, ours is not to pull down other players on the tourism value chain. Um, as tourism players, we want to see everyone having a bite of the action and everyone really um, uh, coming through this tough period um, and, and being a survivor. Um, I, do, I do think uh, there's better value for a guest and better get value for a client to come directly to any business. So direct dealing um, um, definitely gives you a better price um, because the OTAs have to be part of that, that value chain in the pricing. Um, and so if a client is really looking to, to, to get a better deal, they're more likely to come more directly to us. So there, there, there is likely to be a loss of um, that OTA aspect uh, going forward. And they too are going to have to find um, interesting and innovative ways of, of, of surviving. Of course, corporates who want to use um, the OTAs will, will keep them alive. But um, for especially your FITs, your individual travelers, um, I see less and less use of the OTA. Um, Christopher Gilmore has got a, a question, uh, which I, th I think is, is probably the foremost of most people's minds. Um, does government actually fully understand the urgency of opening up international airspace um, for inbound tourism? Because quite frankly, February 21 is a complete non-start for the in industry. And as Christopher says, if it's implemented, this will probably result uh, or may result in the total destruction of foreign tourism. Um, it sounds a little bit Armageddon, um, but I think there's some truth in what he's saying. Uh, what are your thoughts, Nandira? No, I think, hi, Chris, how are you? Look, I think, I think Chris is right. Um, but I, I guess what government has been doing all along is, is, is playing the, the, the people's lives first. Could it have been shorter, you know, if we if we had gone back in um, much sooner, um, so that we could all survive and and get our businesses up quicker? Would we have been able to do it, um, albeit in a space of ever-growing um, COVID cases? The jury is out. Um, we are where we are. It is what it is. I think government is beginning to 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 hear us. Um, I think the very fact that we haven't heard yet what the regulations um, for this new advanced level three is, is simply because um, we've posed some very hard questions. We've put some very um, hard um, scenarios to government through the TBCSA and through FEDHASA to say, you've got to open up interprovincial travel. You've got to um, allow more airlines to, 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 to operate in, in the next level. You've got to let restaurants open up um, so that they can they can survive, or you will not have an industry to open. There will be nothing. We'll all be gone. We'll all have no jobs. We'll have liquidated our businesses, and our hotels will be mothballed. Um, so I think that that message has gone across quite strongly. I am privy in some in some cases in in in, in where I sit to what some of the conversations that are taking place. Again, it's a delicate balance because we want we want a collaborative. Um, approach with government. We, we, we don't want a, an approach where um, government and private sector are at loggerheads and fighting. Is our voice being heard? I think it is being heard. Has it been heard soon enough, Chris? 
I, I think we all wish it had been heard sooner because it's, it's hurting where we are from um, a survival point of view. And it, it will take longer to, to get back to those 65% occupancy rates that we enjoyed three months ago. Uh, thank you, Lindy. Well, and I think one of the, uh, the impressions the general public get is that it's the government that are dictating exactly what happens. Um, but it's, it's been uh, uh, interesting to see people like Wendy Alberts, um, yourself, um, and, uh, and Lee from uh, Fred Haas, who are very much involved in productive negotiations with uh, government. And as you say, government listening. Um, it's not um, saying, well, you will do this without any consultation. But so it's, uh, Lindy, where it's very satisfying to know that we've got people like yourself who are representing the industry out there to government. Um, thank you for that. I want to yes. go to a, another question, um, if I may, from Tabile. Um, touched on flexible staffing solutions. Uh, the millennial employee does prefer to work remotely and have flexible working hours. How do you think we can accommodate, accommodate this in the hospitality industry? Tobile. I laugh because Tobile is a city lodger, so she's putting me to the test here. Uh, I, I, had um, I had a feeling. I'm, I'm, I'm not sharing the views of City Lodge Hotel Group. I'm sharing the views of Lindywe, of, of how I think it, it can work. You know, um, I think I shared with Stephen um, when we were preparing for this. I remember when I worked as a student in the States, how flexible it was to work. I, I haven't been in the States for many years, but just the ability of um, having a job in this hotel as a banqueting supervisor on the weekends and working in this restaurant as, as a waitress during the weeks um, and, and so on, just made life um, far much more easier in terms of, you know, as a student, bringing some cash into my pocket. But coming back to the livelihoods of grown men and women who have families to look after, I, I think as an industry, there, there are opportunities. So we, we will first come out of this COVID period having suffered some great casualties. We've already seen retrenchments. So there will be individuals out there who, who, who will be needing jobs. Um, I, I don't see a lot of full-time um, jobs being re-secured going forward, but flexible jobs, part-time jobs are probably going to become um, something that needs to be considered. How our labor laws are going to accommodate that, I don't know. The jury's out for me. But those are new conversations, I think, that need to be reopened. Um, to say, if, if, if a millennial uh, like Tobile, who um, enjoys working, first of all, remotely from home, um, I think it's hard to work remotely from home if you are in our business, because our business is about people. It's about being in the space of our hotel or being in the space of your um, car rental company or wherever and meeting and greeting people. But there will be certain aspects that can be remote. Um, the booking aspect, as an example, the reservationists. Why should an admin controller work at the office if they can work comfortably at home and be far much more productive and be docked for the number of hours that they actually put in, as opposed to, I was there for eight hours and therefore I get paid. Um, a new way of looking at it would be, I was in my house and I can show you and demonstrate that productively I created 20 new reservations for you, uh, Miss Company, and um, therefore you will pay me X. That's a new way of thinking. And I think that's the sort of thinking that we should have in flexible staffing solutions. So certainly um, accommodating people in terms of working in different companies in, a, in, in, 
without getting in the way of competition aspects, because you can't have a Soho employee working for City Lodge, or can you? Um, but maybe you could have a city lodger working in the daytime and in the evening working in Nando's, as an example, uh, to supplement their, their salary. So those are the sort of things that one would think of. The other one is the flexibility of staff, being able to also work flexibly in any environment. Today, I'm at the casino, you know, working the, the, the slots, and in the evening, I'm in housekeeping, making beds or doing turndown. Um, that flexibility is also going to be important on the, on the side of staff um, and, and could open some interesting conversations, of course, with the unions, I'm sure, but would provide far much more agile businesses and um, really assist businesses going forward, especially after this period we've gone through. Thank you. Um, again, I was reading an article uh, this morning um, about compensation uh, mechanisms. Uh, again, tilting towards more variable pay. And I think you mentioned on it there is that um, looking more towards people's contribution rather than their turning up. Um, so if so, a reservation, contrib reservationist contributes a large amount of, um, of uh, potential, a large amount of, of bookings, then the compensation mechanism uh, would then be looked at that as well. And also, I suppose the advantage of, of temping would be to, help to cut down on those fixed costs um, of staffing, um, as long as one's then looking at the whole in terms of um, um, multi-skilling over multiple um, uh, companies and multiple businesses. Uh, Lindiwe always reminds me of every single, I think uh, just um, about every single uh, movie that I see, it's an American movie, the mom's always working two jobs or three jobs. And it seems to have become a bit of a paradigm of that. But I don't see it happening so much in South Africa is that people have a job and not necessarily working over a number of different ones with different multi-skills. Uh, you know, packing shells in the evening and working as an IT consultant during the day isn't an unusual thing if one's trying to pay bills. Absolutely, and, and I, think, I think we should allow that space. We, we must not block it. We must allow this situation that's thrown us into this crisis to come out with new ideas and not be afraid to challenge the norms of yesterday and create a new way of doing things dynamically, dynamically so that we all win, so that people earn more and companies are able to contain and keep their expenses down, especially um, the biggest expense in any company, staff, you know, salaries. I love this, um, this question from Nati. Nati, um, uh, Nati asks, um, which positive attributes have you come across that were influenced by COVID-19? Now, the, the beginning of that is sort of looking at the industry things and uh, the confidence that Nati has is that uh, mm -hmm. a lot of this will benefit the industry in the long run. Um, so what positive attributes have you come across? Hi, Nati. Um, I'll, I'll give my own personal uh, perspective. It, it was very frightening um, to be in our offices at head office um, talking about shutting down head office and going to work from home. It was almost like you were going to war without a gun and being told you're going into a bunker and this, un, this invisible um, enemy was coming to get you. And the safest place was your home and keep your doors locked. Make sure you've bought enough wine and enough food um, okay. and 
and chocolate if that's your advice, but, but be safe. And I think very soon, once we had all settled down into um, our, our bunkers, as I call them, certain attributes came out. Um, the attributes that were most important were the ones of looking at other people, um, considering what your own staff were going through. If you were scared, can you imagine what a front desk clerk is going through if you, as a COO, are scared? And, and just being able to say, I'm scared, um, but also having the humility to, 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 to recognize that it's there, but also to quickly understand that leadership is important at times like this. If ever there was a time that I saw that attribute of leadership come out was now, in myself, but also in colleagues, in the most unlikely people around you who just rise from, from, from a very quiet space in the organization and become very prominent and become very important and start playing a new role that you are not aware of, um, that you say, wow. So leadership, compassion for people, um, compassion and understanding of what everyone else is going through, um, a, a spirit of sharing. You know, I talked about solidarity in our industry where I've never called my colleagues in this industry in other businesses, you know, be it Soho or Sun International or AHA, as much as I have during this space because we all, re we, we all needed some sort of consolation. You know, you needed to call your colleague in Soho to hear what he or she is doing and almost be able to say, oh, we're also doing the same or we're thinking about it or that's a great idea. And being humble to say, that's a great idea. Um, so a lot of humility, a lot of collaboration with, with colleagues in the industry um, and, and just basically um, providing leadership also from not necessarily being in the front, but being a voice, a part of a voice. We talked about influence, learning how to influence conversations. And you don't have to be in the front. People don't need to know that you made a contribution. But if you are able to bring the influence of your organization into any conversation, be it with government or be it in circles that are making very big decisions, um, some of those attributes I, I recognized as, as coming out, not just in myself, but in people whom I have been conversing with and, and, and working with. And then, you know, just that attribute of optimism, of belief. You've got to have some faith somewhere. You know, I, I believe in my God and I'm sure other people believe in others, but there's got to be something that wakes you up in the morning that says, there's a reason I'm awake. I'm awake for my children. I'm awake for my, my country. I'm awake because we've got to get this industry moving. You know, so that optimism also. Um, has been something that, that gets me and keeps me going. Indira, I think that's a fabulous uh, point to be able to end the webinar. Um, and, and I've got to thank you very much for the, uh, the positive message that you've given today. Uh, the, the pragmatism with it, but the positivity as well. And certainly to end it, to say that we're all in this together. Um, we've got a lot of industry, industry professionals on the line listening to us today. And, and I know having spoken to a lot of them myself is that they feel very similarly to yourself. Um, and um, um, again, Vindiwe, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Uh, thank you again for your positivity. And uh, thank you to our attendees uh, for attending and listening to us today. Uh, we will be putting this up online. Um, so you'll be able to see uh, this video again. Um, so, uh, so please, we'll keep in touch with you. Vindiwe, thank you again very much indeed. Thank you very much. And I feel very honored and, 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 and humbled um, by this opportunity, Stephen. And thank you to all the colleagues 
who tuned in and I hope we can continue to have similar conversations once we're all offline. Um, let's talk to each other. Let's keep in touch and let's take our tourism industry to the next level. We can do it. Thank you again. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye.